I was a kid, I had Matchbox cars. Do you remember Matchbox cars? I think they're still a thing. Little cars, about yay big, size of a Matchbox, probably where they got their name. My brother and I had this track kit. Do you remember these? They were like strips of plastic, about yay long, about a foot and a, or two and a half feet or so. And they were real thin and about two inches wide. And, and they had little edges on them to keep the cars on the track, right? And you had connectors, and you could connect the tracks together. You could make ramps and, and jumps. You could make loop-de-loops. And, and so we would set up these really elaborate tracks all over our, our rooms and then race the cars down them. It was great fun. You know, I wonder, this is where my brain goes, right? What if you were in the car? Because, you know, sometimes we would design a track in such a way the cars really couldn't stay in the track. They'd get going so fast, and they would just sort of fly off the edge and crash, and, you know, we thought that was great fun. But what if, what if you're in that car? Like, there's a little tiny passenger and a little tiny driver, and the driver's, like, white-knuckling it, like, oh, my goodness, don't let me die this time. And, and the passenger's like, just stay on course. Just stay on the track. Don't go flying off. The cars needed to stay on the track. We use this phrase, stay the course. Stay the course, it means stay on track. Keep going in the right direction. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get distracted. Don't go off course. But what is it that defines what the course is? How do you know if you're staying the course? How do you know if you're really on track? How do you know you're on the right track and not some other track? We're looking at the book of Colossians through this sermon series I've called Watershed. And and the principal idea that I've seen in this book is that Paul tells the church in Colossae, Jesus Christ is our watershed. He is the thing that makes us different. He is the tipping point of history. His cross and his resurrection changes everything. And so as Christians, we need to be defined by the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the watershed that determines that the course of our life doesn't flow this way. It's going in this direction because of Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, rather than thinking moment by moment, who am I supposed to be? Do I give into this? Do I do this? We stop and we say, do I believe in and trust in Jesus Christ? And we start there. And then we use that as the lens through which we answer every other question. Paul's writing this letter to the Colossian church. And he says early on, he declares that they have faith in Jesus. They show love to one another and he congratulates them and encourages them in that. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1, he wants them to grow and continue in that. And he prays for them in verses 9 to 14. And then last week, we looked at chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, where Paul gives what is arguably one of the best overviews in Scripture of the sovereign authority and deity of Jesus Christ. And we looked at how Jesus has all authority over all creation and holds all creation together. We looked at how Jesus has all authority, all sovereign power and authority over the church and holds the church together. We saw how Jesus is truly God, equal to God in all ways, is the fullness of God. And that Jesus' death on the cross in verse 20 
is the way that God reconciles all things to himself. So Paul's painted this really big picture of who Jesus is. And we talk often that Jesus is not something we tack on to our already busy life to just help out a little bit, a crutch to help us get by. He takes over and redefines our life. That's what I mean by watershed. It is a complete and total difference because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so now in verses 21 to 23, we're just looking at three verses this morning. If you've been in church for any length of time, you know that doesn't mean it's a short sermon. But we're just looking at three verses because Paul moves on from focusing on Christ and who he is to now focusing on what has Christ done for us and what difference does that make? Because in the rest of Colossians, what we're going to see is that the Colossian believers were being tempted to veer off course. They were being pulled away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing this letter to encourage them to stay the course, to warn them and challenge them to not get distracted and be pulled off course. And we need to hear the encouragement. We also need to hear the warning and the challenge. Stay the course. So let's look at verses 21 to 23 of Colossians chapter 1. Let me read it. It's not very long. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul's using one of his favorite techniques here in in writing a letter and, and kind of sharing the gospel. It's this, you were once this, But now in Jesus, you're this. If you read Paul's other letters, this comes up again and again. Once you were this, but now you are this. And so he starts with what we once were. That's verse 21. He then moves to the but now of verse 22. In Christ, here's the difference. And then in 23, he adds on, keep going. Stay the course. Don't get off track. So let's look first at what verse 21 says about how, apart from Jesus Christ, everybody in the entire world and throughout all of history is off course. Off course. Paul uses three phrases to describe just how off course we really are. And these put together are so powerful. Starts with, you are alienated from God enemies in our minds, and we have evil behavior. Alienated from God, enemies in our minds had evil behavior. Thanks, pastor. This is like super encouraging. So glad I came to church today. We have to go through this if we're going to understand why Jesus did what he did and what he accomplished for us. One of the reasons Paul understands, and and I think today we're still struggling with, one of the reasons churches are letting go of the gospel is because we're letting go of sin and how desperate we are for salvation. When we think our sin is no big deal, 
We don't need a big savior. We got this. But Paul starts by saying, you're off course. You don't got this. You are alienated from God, an enemy in your mind apart from Jesus Christ, and live in evil behavior. Now let's take all of these together before we look at them individually. When we take them all together, they describe a complete, total separation and hostility toward God. Complete, total separation and hostility toward God. We are separated in our situation. We are alienated, separated in our thinking. We've become enemies and we are separated in our actions, our evil behavior. Nothing is left out. If you've been following along with us in Colossians, you see that Paul loves to talk this way. He uses these big phrases and and these complete overarching ideas. And, And the idea is he wants them to understand, apart from Christ, you are lost. Lost. Dead, he uses in Ephesians. Without hope, without help. You can't just fix yourself up a little bit. He is trying to make sure they understand that our sin problem is much bigger than anything we can possibly work out or or overcome on our own. Let's look at these these three things individually. He starts by saying you're alienated from God. Alienated means separated. And, And it often in scripture means one that used to be together and now is separated, which is even worse in a sense. Like you had this creation, or I'm sorry, this relationship, and now you've lost that relationship. That's hard. If we go back to creation in the Garden of Eden, we see that God created humanity to live in this perfect, loving, gracious relationship with him. But now we see in scripture, we are alienated, separated. That relationship has been broken. There is now a distance between us and God. Interestingly enough, I was um, chatting with Chris right before, well, after Sunday school, before this, and he was telling me what they're talking about in, in children's church. And it's the exact same thing. This separation, what are the effects of sin? I think it's amazing how God works to kind of layer these things together. I also think in times that we are maybe introspective, honest with ourselves, we look at the world, we look at humanity, what I see at least, and and I hope you do, or I think you do as well, is that there is a longing for something more. There's a feeling of experiencing that separation, whether we can put our finger on it or admit that that's what it is. There's a sense that we need something more. And the world and all of human history is filled with trying to fill that void and find that something more. There's a phrase that's often used, this idea that we have this God-shaped hole. And it comes from a guy named Blaise Pascal. He was a a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer, and theologian. So in case you think like you're really smart, just read about Blaise Pascal and it'll keep you humble. He wrote in this, this thing called the Pensies. He says this, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help since this infinite abyss 
can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. We feel that alienation from God. We see it in our culture. We see it in ourselves and in our families. Elsewhere, Paul uses another word to describe this separation we have from God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he puts it very bluntly, you were dead. So it's not just a relational separation. There's a separation between us and the life of God that sin leads to death. And Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and sins, completely cut off and separated from the life of God. Maybe some of you were taught the bridge illustration. Have you heard of this before? In sharing the gospel, you can kind of pull out a napkin or a sheet of paper and draw two cliffs. And here's us on one side and God on the other. And here's this cliff that's, or this chasm that separates us. And we don't have the power to get over that. It describes our alienation. But if the problem is simply distance, whether physical distance or relational distance, can't we just come back? Can't we just show back up and say, God, I'm sorry, I went that way, but I'm going this way now. Things should be better, right? He goes on and he says, you were enemies in your minds. Enemies. English Standard Version says hostile. Our thinking is hostile toward God, apart from Jesus Christ. We're not just separated from God. We are his enemies. This is hard stuff. And so many people, wait a minute, pastor, God is love and God just loves everybody. He does. And what does the Bible say we should do to our enemies? Love them, but it doesn't change the fact that we are his enemies. We chose to be enemies. We think of ourselves as enemies. He said, wait a minute pastor. I remember before I was a Christian, I wasn't an enemy of God. I didn't think, I didn't hate God. I didn't curse God. I don't think that way. Let's look at what scripture says about this. All the way back at the beginning, as I said earlier, God creates Adam and Eve to have this relationship with him. And he gives them everything they need. And he says, just don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat from that one tree. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and He ate it. Who said that it was good for the food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom? See, God had said, don't eat it. Now, she is looking at it and saying, hmm, I know better. I'm going to make up my own mind. I'm going to decide for myself. Eve thought that she was the one to judge whether or not the good, the fruit was good or bad. And then Adam and Eve, Eve both made a decision about what they wanted. And notice what's missing from that discussion, which is what God wanted. Their thinking was about themselves and what they wanted, not about God and what he wanted. That's what it means to be an enemy 
in your mind toward God. We put ourselves first. And now the whole world and all of human history is off course. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The idea here that Paul's writing about in this, our mind, it's, it's helpful to think about it more like just a mindset. It's not just we have bad thoughts. It's the direction of our thinking. The way that we want to go, the way we think about ourselves and the world and the universe and everything in it is off course. Apart from Jesus Christ and his salvation, we live for ourselves rather than for God. That's what Paul means by being enemies in your minds. Finally, he says it's because of our evil behavior. I don't think we really understand the term evil today. This came to light again for me watching the news coverage of the shooting on Tuesday. Horrific, evil event. Evil outcome. Horrible. But to watch the secular news media describe the shooter as evil, I thought, on what basis? What is the standard of evil? I think our world uses this to mean the ultimate bad. Something that is so above and beyond in how horrific and awful it is. It's evil. Evil is this extreme. And so the world is comfortable talking about evil. We're talking about someone that massacres children. And please hear me, that is evil. They're not wrong in that. It's evil. The problem is we limit evil for the extreme, ultimately harmful. In Scripture, evil does not mean something that is extraordinarily bad or harmful. It means that which is contrary to the goodness and glory of God, which certainly includes the extraordinary, but it's much more. Evil behavior is behavior that's not done for God's glory, not done in submission to God's authority, and is rather done for our own purposes, disregarding God and his will. That is, according to scripture, evil. Evil. And Paul says when we live apart from God, apart from his saving work through the cross, we are living in an evil way. That doesn't mean you're as bad as the shooter doesn't mean the consequences of your actions are as bad as that. But it does mean we are living apart from God and his glory. All three of these ideas intertwined, alienated, enemies in our minds, and evil behavior, all of them put together show us that there's this ongoing spiral that happens. We're separated from God, which twists our thinking, which warps our behavior, which twists our thinking, which separates us from God. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Now, we might want to say at this point, reading a verse like verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1, I'm not that bad. Pastor, I I wasn't that bad before I became a Christian. Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You go, I'm not that bad. I mean, come on. Or I have good friends. They're not Christians, but they're good people. 
Let me give just three brief answers and then we'll move on. Number one is the most important, and if you don't hear the other two, this is the one you need to remember. Scripture says this is true. That apart from Jesus Christ, we are lost, helpless, hopeless, evil in our thinking, warped, separated from God. That's what Scripture says. So the first thing when we get into these discussions is what did God say through his word and will we accept what he says? The second thing I would say is that the entire scope of scripture shows how destructive and rebellious human sinful nature truly is. From Genesis to Revelation. It is, yes, a testimony to the goodness and grace and sovereign, powerful will of God, absolutely, but it is also a testimony to how wicked and awful humanity is and how we go our own way constantly. Third, and I admit this is subjective, but I believe the entire scope of human history proves the fact that we are drastically off course and lost. We must accept that we were, apart from Jesus Christ, sinful, lost, hopeless, helpless, and completely off course. If we cannot start there and accept that difficult message, we cannot then move on to the hope that is offered to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do need to look at that message of hope in verse 22. But now... But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Colossians 1, 21 to 23, these three verses that we have laid out, and depending on your English translation, they might be two or three different sentences. In the Greek, these three verses are one sentence. And at the heart and soul and focal point of this sentence is the phrase reconciled. By Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is calling their attention to. You were this, but now you have been reconciled by Jesus Christ. You've been brought back to the course that you were created to be on. All of the problems of verse 21 are overcome and fixed only through Jesus Christ. No amount of human wisdom or effort can overcome what verse 21 describes of us. Reconciled means to be brought back, restored, made right. Jesus has done something we were powerless to do for ourselves. He did what our effort would never be enough to do. He restored us to God, overcoming our alienation. He fixed us, overcoming the wickedness of our thinking. He made us holy, overcoming the wickedness of our sinful behaviors. He put us back on course. And how did he do this? By Christ's physical body through death. Penalty of sin is death. It's what we deserve as sinners. The Bible says that over and over again. And I want us to remember the context here. These three verses come right after verses 15 through 20, where Paul has just gone to great lengths to talk about who Jesus is. He is truly God. 
He created the world. All things exist for him and through him. And now he's saying that Jesus took on human flesh, being born in that manger, lived among us, and died suffering on the cross in our place. That's how we're reconciled. He did this to present you holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Think about what we looked at in verse 21, this complete and total rebellion, separation from God, being enemies of God, rebellious in our thinking and in our evil behavior. Now listen again to what we have because of Christ's death on the cross. Holy in God's sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Do you get the point that Paul's making here? Just as sin was complete and total, and its destruction of our relationship between us and God, so Christ and his death on the cross is complete and total in our reconciliation to God, he fixed the problem because he died in the cross on our place. I said earlier, we must accept that we are sinful. Some people struggle there. They they can't get to the gospel because they don't think they need it. But then we add this second truth. We must accept that it is in Jesus and only in Jesus that we can be saved. And some people struggle there. They say, I've got this. I can do it on my own. I know, I'll just try a few things and I'll work it out and I'll do it on my own. Other people struggle there because they say, there's no way God can accept me. I get what Jesus did and it's beautiful and wonderful, but you don't know who I am and how awful I am. Paul has laid out the depths of our sin and our depravity, the majesty and glory of Jesus, and that he died on the cross in our place. Who are we to tell Jesus he's not enough? Jesus brings us back through his death and resurrection to a right relationship with God. But Paul's not done yet. We are hopelessly lost in sin, powerfully saved in Jesus Christ. And now he challenges us. Stay the course. Look at verse 23, if you continue in your faith. Let me read that again. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. That first word is crucial. If. Paul is issuing a warning and a challenge. If. Here's all this wonderful things been saved for, by Jesus Christ. If the powerful truth that Paul is saying here is that salvation through Jesus Christ is, according to this passage, conditional on something. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. See, something was happening in Colossae, in this church. People were coming in and teaching things that weren't the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the people were being pulled toward it. 
Similar things are being happening or are happening today in our culture. Christians are looking at things in the world and comparing it to scripture. And we say, well, if we just let go of a few things from God's word, we can better relate to people in this world. We'll be more accepted. Let's just redefine and change a few things. And we're letting go of the eternal truth of God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul warns the Colossians about these false teachers and their false ideas, and he uses this phrase, lest they disqualify you. That is strong language. They're cutting the foundation of truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ out from underneath the Colossians. And he says they must continue in their faith. Hold on to the gospel. That phrase that the NIV translates, continue in your faith, can equally be translated, continue in the faith. I don't think the focus is on them and their faith. It's what they're trusting in. Are you holding on to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't veer away. Don't get off course. He uses a couple other phrases to explain this. He says they are established and firm. These are construction metaphors. The foundation of the building, established and firm, grounded, secure. I think too often Christians are just giving up things that we believe. We're giving up the gospel so easily. We live our lives as Christians often putting God on trial in every news story, every online interaction. God said this, but what do I think? God says to live this way, what do I think? God says this is true. I don't know if that's going to work today. And we put God on trial over and over and over again. Paul says, switch it. The gospel is the ground of our truth and we are to stand firm in it and look at everything else and say, how do I see this through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's stand secure and firm. He says, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. This world loves to offer false hope. Think this way, do this way, change this. Then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. The Colossians were running after contemporary secular philosophies of their day. They were running after some Jewish religious practices. There were various things, but all of it had the same effect that Paul says, stay the course in Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 21, Paul says, this is the gospel. It's the same truth. That he's preached and has gone out throughout the world. And it's what he is a servant of. And that's going to lead to the next section where he talks about his ministry. But Paul says that this reconciliation through Jesus Christ in verse 22. That saves them from the separation of the rebellion and sin from verse 21 is conditional. If, he says. Conditional on holding on to the gospel. Now here. Christians, godly people, loving people, wise people, biblical Christians. We like to argue about whether Paul is saying that these Christians can lose their salvation or not. And others will say, well, he's saying if they don't continue in their faith, that proves that they weren't really Christians in the first place. It's a very interesting intellectual debate that frankly, I think completely misses the point. Paul is telling them, now are you trusting Jesus Christ? I had somebody come up to me recently and say, why don't we do altar calls? 
Frankly, I think we have generations of Christians looking back to a prayer they prayed one day, long time ago, and are completely living apart from Jesus Christ today and thinking they're going to heaven because they said a set of words. That's not what Paul says. He says, are you trusting Christ today? Are you living for Christ today? I want to make some very clear applications. Paul is saying clearly there is no salvation apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if the Colossians as a church or Christians today as a church, if we let go of the gospel, we have nothing left. There's no salvation. We're just another civic organization and the world is full of those and we don't need more. We must hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another application This is a warning from Paul, and we must receive it as such. He is challenging them to think through their faith. And the rest of the letter makes it very clear the Colossian Christians were in danger of this very thing, letting go of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to the warning today. The warning of the word if. If you receive Jesus Christ at some time in your past, ask yourself today, are you staying on course? Are you trusting in him today? Are you living for him today? Are you continuing in your faith today, established and firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not moving on from the hope held out in the gospel So I leave you today with this. Stay the course. Don't deviate. Don't get off track. Don't give in. Don't get distracted. Stay the course in Jesus Christ. We must accept who we were before Christ, sinners separated from God, hopeless, helpless, lost, and enemies of God. We must accept who we are in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven and saved, not because of us, but because of what Jesus has done. And we must accept the challenge to stay the course. Hold on to that truth. Don't allow anything to cut in. So ask yourself today, are you staying the course of faith Are you trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save you? And then look at your life. Are you living that way? Nobody does it perfect. We all struggle. There's such grace for sinners who are struggling. But there's another type of letting go of the gospel, which is God says this, and I don't care. I'm going to do this anyway. That is not faith. It is not staying the course. It is being pulled off track. But today, if you are off course, the truth is Jesus reconciles. No matter how far off course you are, the step back is one step to trust Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died in your place to save you from your sins. And then to walk forward in that trust day in and day out. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now 
He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we looked last week at the big picture of who Jesus Christ is, we were challenged with the idea that too often our idea of Jesus is way too small. Father, today we turn and we look at ourselves and our own sin. And sometimes, Father, the picture of our sin is way too small. And we don't understand how helpless we are because the human heart rebels against that idea and we want to be able to say, I've got this. I'm in control. We want to get what we think we want. And we want to think that we have the power and the authority to get it. And yet your word paints a different picture. And I pray that we would accept that on faith. Equally, I pray we would accept on faith the power of the gospel, the good news that your son, equal to you in every way, took on human flesh, died in our place, taking the punishment that should have been ours to take. And he rose from the grave, promising eternal life to all who believe. And that makes us different. And we are to continue holding on to that truth. Continue applying it to our day in, day out situations. Struggling, yes. Stumbling at times, certainly. But looking to your son Jesus as our ultimate hope. Seeking to live for your glory. And trusting in you every step of the way. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that's stuck in verse 21, lost, helpless, hopeless, may they hear the truth and the hope of verse 22, the reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And if anyone's here today that they've been giving up on their faith, walking away, doing their own thing, living in a way that's rebellious toward you, may they hear the word of caution and warning of verse 23. But then look back at verse 21 and see the hope again to come back to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the hope we have through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.